Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. In the first part of the show, we describe the natural and cultural historical context of a multi-day hiking trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we describe a trail that has everything pretty much that you'd want in a great backpacking route. It has alpine lakes, pine forest, mountain meadows, glacially carved valleys, a deep, lush river canyon, soaring granite peaks, and even a rejuvenating hot spring days away from a trailhead. And it, it's a trail that crosses the crest of two separate mountain ranges and finishes at the top of the highest peak in the lower 48 states of the United States. It's a trail as beautiful and as challenging as they come. The High Sierra Trail on this episode of Trails Worth Hiking. To help me talk about the High Sierra Trail, today I have with me probably the person I've done the most hiking with and the most backpacking with in my entire life, Tony Wong, my longtime hiking buddy. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for uh, having me. I think you're probably a masochist for wanting to hang around me so much. Tony and I have hiked up and down California together. In Recently, we even expanded this to an international trip and went trekking in the Himalayas in Nepal. We've hiked thousands of miles together over the last 15 years, countless backpacking trips, lots of them over 50 miles or more, I think, you know, roughly 80 kilometers. And I, I count four that were over 100 miles or 160 kilometers. I don't know if that's what you count. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think about John Muir Trail. Uh, yeah, John Muir Rim Trail. Yes. Kind of Nepal. We're not exactly sure how many miles that trip was. Yeah, uh, definitely over 100. What though. was the fourth one? That's over 100. We did a section of the of the PCT. The PCT. That's right. The year after the JMT. Yeah. Yes. The northern section. So yes, yeah. two years after I think the yeah, JMT. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. My my birthday was on that trip. We did four trips together of over 100 miles. And as you mentioned, the John Muir Trail, the JMT, we did that trip together, and that was over 200 miles, so over, over 320 kilometers. So looking at all the time we spent together on the trail, I couldn't do a podcast on backpacking and trekking trails and not have Tony be my first guest. I'm not actually sure why he keeps going on hikes with me, but he does. And despite all this time on the trail together, we haven't killed each other yet. So I have to start with this first very important question, Tony. Why do you keep going hiking with me? I'm lazy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever planned a trip for myself backpacking. And uh, you haven't managed to kill me yet. Uh, I like being challenged. And, you know, scenery is not bad. And if we get sick of each other, we can kind of space out by a half a mile or a mile. Yeah, so that's it's a good point that I typically do the planning for these trips, and I enjoy the planning. It's why I enjoy doing this podcast and, and talking about trips uh, and talking about the different elements that go into them. But it does help to have uh, someone along uh, for safety and someone along who uh, it's fun to hang out with and someone who also hikes a similar style that I hike. And we have found over the years that we hike pretty well together. Uh, absolutely. I think that's one of the big things is that we're very compatible. Um, I would say pacing wise is one big thing. We're, we're kind of both a little on the lightweight ultralight. Um, 
level of hiking. So good temperament, same pacing is very important. And um, I'd say same style, very compatible. Yeah. And so assuming he'll let me drag him on the show, just like I drag him on hiking trips, and I will do all the planning again for this (laughs) show as well. Tony will probably be a frequent guest because a lot of these trails that we're going to cover on the show are trails that Tony and I have hiked together. And there's really just no better person uh, to, to join me, particularly to talk about backpacking in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Tony's a Sierra hiking veteran. And particularly on gear, I think you have a lot of insights and have just spent a lot of time thinking about gear that can be really helpful to listeners. Yeah, I just gear geeking. I mean, if you're trying to cut weight and you're crazy enough to measure things down to the half ounce, you probably get familiar with a lot of gear that's out there. Yes. Okay. So let's put, we'll put gear aside for a moment. We'll come back to that because I do think it is important to give people a general sense of what's appropriate to be thinking about for gear when hiking in the high Sierra. So we'll do that a little bit later on, but let's start. I'm going to start this show with some background a little bit on where is the Sierra Nevada? What is the Sierra Nevada? For those of us who live here in California, it's our backyard and it's our playground and it's where we go to see some of the best backpacking in my opinion in the world. But uh, for a lot of people, they may not know much about it. So in general, the Sierra Nevada is a mountain range that's east of the San Joaquin Valley in California. And the San Joaquin Valley is essentially California's agricultural powerhouse. So you have this area where they grow citrus and nuts and raisins and all kinds of things that are uh, exported around the world and are just high quality agricultural goods. And the reason they're able to do that in large part is because there's this fantastic soil that has come down from the erosion of the Sierra Nevada mountains. There's water that comes down from the Sierra Nevada mountains. The Sierra Nevada mountains are really what has made California what it is. And so let's talk a little bit about those, about that mountain range. The Sierra Nevada mountains is basically a 400 mile block of granite that formed 100 million years ago in the Triassic period. And it's the way granite is formed, it's an igneous rock. And what that means is it's molten and it's formed underground and it hardens underground, unlike volcanic stuff that comes to the surface. And so you have molten rock that hardens underground and then ultimately it gets pushed up. And things here in the West Coast of the United States get pushed up because you've got a subduction zone. You've got two, you've got continental plate at the Pacific, you know, the end of California clashing with the next plate over. Um, so you've got this one plate going under another and it's pushing the, the rock up. And so the igneous granite that's formed 100 million years ago comes to the surface. And that happened about 4 million years ago where there was an uplift and this granite was exposed. And what exposed it was uh, erosion by glaciers. And then once the granite came to the surface, obviously it has been heavily shaped by glaciers as well, which gives some of the most, it gives the Sierra Nevada some of its most fantastic features, its amazing valleys and peaks. One thing to keep in mind about the Sierra Nevada is they're, they're angled in a particular way. They, they rise slowly from the west, and so they, they are a gradual rise in the west, and then they reach the crest in the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas, and then there's a very steep escarpment in the east that drops off pretty severely, so it's almost two different kinds of mountain ranges when you come from the west versus when you come from the east. The trail that we're going to be talking about today covers the entire range, essentially from west to east. And so it, 
it gives you an experience of all of that and also has the addition of a, a second part of the crest that we'll talk about that, that goes through the southern part of the Sierra. So you actually have two ranges to cross. So, Tony, you've been to the eastern Sierra Nevada and seen that escarpment from Highway 395 from Lone Pine and places like that. But what do you how do you think about the way the Sierra Nevada feels in the western side versus how it feels in the east? It's it's very different. Um, kind of on the eastern side, they kind of got screwed. <laughs> what I mean by that is with all the moisture that gets pulled out, out of the uh, mountains, you get all that rainfall. Really, on the western side, it's very green. You get to the eastern side, it is, well, very deserty in some ways, very arid. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the, the eastern Sierra Nevada is desert. And as you get to the very southern end, it kind of feeds into the Mojave Desert. So you're right. It's a There's a rain shadow there. Yeah. And you have a high desert. It's on the east. And so what the the way it affects backpacking is that from the west, you have more gradual climbs uphill. And on the east, it's just a really steep climb to get anywhere. But the, the advantage of some trails that start on the east is that you get into the high country very quickly. One thing that also, to, as I mentioned, is that this is really... The, Sierra Nevada is really the water for California. It's the primary water source for most of California, and it drains west to San Francisco Bay, which really wouldn't be there without it. San Francisco Bay is the confluence of two major rivers, one of which comes from the Sierra Nevada. So let's talk now about where this hike is. The High Sierra Trail is in Sequoia National Park. Tony, do you know why Sequoia National Park is actually there? Uh no idea. I just kind of go where you tell me. Okay. <laughs> so what if I told you the that Sequoia National Park arose as a result of a plan to create a socialist utopia? A utopia. Okay. Well, don't you feel like it's a utopia when you go there? Uh, it's beautiful, but no, I don't think it's a utopia. <laughs> okay. So there's a, let me tell the story of this. There's a guy named Lawrence Grunland. He's an immigrant from Denmark. And in the 1880s, he was a leading socialist in America. In 1884, he wrote a book called The Cooperative Commonwealth. And this book was essentially a model for collective progressive settlement. I don't know, maybe think of it like an early model for doing a commune or something. And he was trying to replace Marx's sort of class struggle idea with the deliberate, deliberate cultivation of cooperation. And this book was apparently hugely influential and only a year after it was published, a man named Burnett Haskell in San Francisco, who was a, a lawyer and labor organizer, decided to create the Cooperative Land Purchase and Colonization Association, is what they called it, to create Gronland's utopian society. The only question they had was, where do we create our utopian society? And so they searched the Pacific coast and even parts of Mexico but ultimately, the problem that they came upon is even if you're going to live in a commune somewhere in some utopian society, you have to be able to survive financially. And so the answer, can you guess what the answer was? Uh, resort in no. the mountains? No, that's a good guess. <laughs> but no, the answer was timber. Oh, yeah. So they, they had their eyes on the giant forest in what is now Sequoia National Park. And so the giant forest is an area of Sequoia National Park that's made up of sequoia trees, which are the largest trees on earth. You've, have you, you've been to the sequoia oh, trees. Yeah, absolutely. They're amazing. And so they're not part of this hike per se, but at the beginning of the hike, you start in a grove of sequoia trees. Yes. What can you tell people who have never been to California 
what a sequoia tree is like. It's unreal. It's it's one of like a Jurassic tree. I mean, these things go back thousands of years. Uh, I think in Yosemite, you could drive through one or there used to be. Uh, I mean, they're just really unimaginable. They're one of the largest living things on earth that just go up and up and up. It's, yeah, it's a piece of history. That's right. It's an interesting way to put it because they really are living history. So let me talk a little bit about what these trees are like. They have an average of height of 50 to 85 meters. So that's 165 roughly to 280 feet tall. And that's not the tallest tree. Their cousin, the redwood tree on the coast, is taller but not as big around. The the sequoia trees are 6 to 8 meters in circumference or 20 to 26 feet roughly. And you mentioned how long these things have been alive. And that's that's one of the most fascinating things, too, is they are up to 3,200 years old. Think about this. You have a tree alive now that was alive for 1,000 years at the time of Christ, more than 1,000 years at the time of Christ, and more than 700 years at the time of Buddha. <laughs> that's just unreal on a time scale to think about. Yeah. And so this is a living thing that today has seen that much over time. There are 68 groves in the western Sierra Nevada, and they're at a range of typically 1,400 to 2,150 meters or 4,600 feet to 7,050 feet. The general Sherman tree is the largest, and largest, again, not the tallest, but largest meaning most massive tree on earth. It's 84 meters tall, which is about 275 feet. And if you measure just a few feet above the ground, it's more than 25 feet around, almost eight meters in diameter. You've seen the General Sherman tree. Yeah. If you had, a, I think if a branch fell off, that it would crush a bus. I mean, it's just huge. Uh, it's unfathomable. Yeah. One of the things I remember is looking up at the General Sherman tree and seeing one of its large branches. In one of its large branches, it's as big as any other tree you've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it is, uh, it's unreal. <laughs> in the giant forest, which is the area where the General Sherman tree is, there are five of the 10 largest trees on earth just in that one grove. So this collective of uh, wannabe utopian collectivists, I don't know what that what to call them exactly, they start filing claims. And by October 18th, so timber claims, and by October 1885, it looked like they would soon own a pretty good portion of that giant forest that we're talking about. But uh, in steps George Stewart. So George Stewart is a local newspaper editor and former land agent. And he saw the size of these claims. These people were claiming huge swaths of these forests, and he got concerned. And he had advocated for years for protecting the sequoia and its watersheds and thought basically that this was a corporate plot that some timber company was taking over or some other kind of big corporate entity. So he wasn't thinking of a utopian uh, collective society, but he, he thought somebody here is trying to do something they shouldn't be. And he alerted the land office of a potential fraud. And as a result, the land office uh, suspended all claims pending an investigation to figure out what was going on. So this is in 1885, but the colonists decided to move forward while the claim was pending. And so in 1886, only a year later, 160 members had moved to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada below the giant forest, and they established what was called the Kawea Colony. Kawea is the name of a local river. It's a native word that supposedly means 
here I rest. I think there's some dispute as to what it actually means, but that's one translation. So in October 1886, starting from their base in the foothills, they start building a road up to the giant forest. So they're going full, full speed ahead. They don't have the claim yet, but they're going full speed ahead. And they established Arcady and Camp Advance near the current town of Three Rivers, where a lot of their descendants actually still live. They organized a school, evening musical entertainment, and started doing some farming. The road to the giant forest was completed in late 1889, so it took them three years to build. And it's an engineering marvel. It has an 8% grade for 18 miles and goes up 4,000 feet or 1,200 meters of gain. And so they engineered and built this amazing road to get them from the foothills up to the giant forest. And by the summer of 1890, they're starting to cut 3,000 board feet or 914 meters per day of timber. All right, so let's back up a, a little bit to late 1889. The report comes back and it found no fraud. And so the colonists were optimistic and this could have been the end of the giant forest. But the report languished for reasons that aren't totally clear, and the claims weren't granted. Meanwhile, George Stewart, the newspaper editor and former land agent, he wasn't done. He went straight to congressman and to uh, General William Vandiver, who was a congressman at the time, and asked him to uh, introduce a bill to create a park containing certain of the sequoia groves, which didn't actually include the giant forest, but included other sequoia groves. And that um, legislation was quickly passed and signed by President Benjamin Harrison. So in September 1890, because of this guy's efforts, because of George Stewart, Sequoia National Park was born. So Tony, in 1890, in September 1890, how many national parks did the United States have? No idea. Three, four, uh, none? Those are all good guesses, but the answer is one. Sequoia was the first national park in California, and it was the second nationwide. Do you know what the first was? Uh, no. Yellowstone. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Sequoia was only the second. This is a brand new system, essentially. Lucky timing-wise that these trees weren't all cut down before they had this system. And so they have a system to protect an area through a national park, and it's only the second national park ever created in the United States, and it was created to protect these sequoia trees. But as I said, it didn't actually include the giant forests that they were so concerned about. But only one week later, there was another bill signed, and that bill created a completely different national park that we all know and love, Yosemite, and it all, which is a bit north of sequoia. And it also, though, included an expansion of sequoia to include the giant forest, and some of these small townships that these people were living in and that existed in the area. So all of a sudden, this colony's claim was within a national park. According to one article, they, the Southern Pacific Railroad, which had its own timber interests in the area, was probably behind the bill that created Yosemite and, and created the giant forest as part of, that included the giant forest as part of uh, Sequoia National Park. But that's just a... I think that's a theory. Nobody knows for sure. And so ultimately, the report that the uh, investigation produced comes back and it recommends upholding the claims that these people should have the, the area that they wanted. <laughs> well, 
I'm still kind of blown away with the whole idea of this utopia, like going, uh, let's go out to God green, God's green earth and just turn all these wonderful ancient trees into lumber. Well, you got to pay, you got to pay the bills. <laughs> you got to pay the bills. I get that. Different time, but it's kind of interesting utopia. It's going to destroy the environment. Yeah. Even in utopia, you got to <laughs> pay utopia. the bills. Yeah, um, I get it. So the report recommends upholding the claims, but now it's rejected. The report is rejected because they're not on private land anymore. They're now in national park land. I got screwed. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so these people were arrested and jailed and later convicted of timber trespass. <laughs> Who knew that was a thing? Oh, my God. And the U.S. cavalry troops were dispatched to patrol the park to prevent them from cutting any more trees down. So by 1891, only a year or so later, the colony began to fade, although many families, as I said, remained in the area and some of their descendants still live in that area. And for 30 years, that road that they built was the only way to the giant forest. Ultimately, there was a modern road that's there now called the General's Highway that was built in 1926. But it, it took a long time for someone else to actually build a road through the park. Do you know if that old road or the original road, is it still functional? That is a very good question. That thought just occurred to me as I said that. I, it might be... I want to say I read that it might be a, something you can travel on foot. I don't know. It's a good question. We should find out and hike it if we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Burnett Haskell, who started this utopian society, uh, things did not work out well for him. And this guy was, again, a, a lawyer and labor organizer from San Francisco before all of this. He reportedly died alone and embittered, addled by drink in a ramshackle cabin by the ocean on the outskirts of San Francisco. Okay. Uh don't try to make a utopia next time. Well, then I guess I come back to where I started this story about the creation of this national park is did he succeed in creating utopia or not? Actually, you could say because of his actions, inadvertently he did. And we have something here today because of his actions. If he didn't start, there wouldn't have been the impetus to protect this space. So there you go. We do owe him something. Exactly. Right. Maybe not the way he would have wanted it to work out, but I, I agree that there's something in this story that that has a nice, uh, happy bow tied to it at the end of it. All right, so we've got this park in 1890 that encompasses these big sequoia groves, but it doesn't encompass the part of the park that the High Sierra Trail is in for the most part. So in 1926, the park expanded through additional legislation, and it more than tripled in size and went all the way to Mount Whitney, where it is today. And so it added lakes and canyons and forests of pine, cedar, fir, juniper, lots of peaks, and the Great Western Divide, which is that second crest of the Sierra in the west and the southern part of the Sierra that is in really its own mountain range within the Sierra. And there were no roads into this backcountry in 1926 that were added to Sequoia National Park. And there was one poor trail. At the time, the superintendent, of the park, John White, he decides we're going to build a trail to connect all the way to Mount Whitney from the western side all the way to Mount Whitney. He also decides no roads will ever be built in the High Sierra part of the park. With a lot of these parks where they get added into the system, do you think they were added in part just because of their inaccessibility to commercially develop? Like, well, we'll just add to the park system because no one else is going to develop it. Is there some aspect of that? I know I don't think that's what it is. I well, I don't know for sure, but my sense is that there was really a desire to protect these areas and to make them available to people. And I guess you're right. There's, nobody's using them for anything anyway. 
but they they are special places and i think the people who were running these parks understood that and saw the opportunity to protect them but that's just a, that's a guess i don't know the the details behind how this expansion happened and sort of what the political impetus was to make it happen but i do think it's notable that the superintendent of the park decides we're not going to put any roads into this back country and we're going to build a trail to make this place available to people if they're willing to work for it, which is the High Sierra Trail is the trail they decide to build. So let's talk now about that trail. In 1928, they start building. So in the first year in 1928, they start building and they get 1.5 miles from Crescent Meadow. So not terribly far in, but they're building the initial part. In 1929, they get to the Great Western Divide and they've got to figure out how to get over the divide. And they have an engineer named John Deal who's trying to figure this out. And he has two routes. One is that goes really high over uh, the crest of the Great Western Divide. And another one is a little bit lower, but is a little bit more of a tough engineering feat. And that's to go through the Kauai Gap. That's the route that they ultimately decide to use. It's 1,000 feet lower than the other options. So it's a little bit easier. And it also connected better to other existing trails. So in 1930 and 1931, stock market crashes already happened, but they continue work despite that. And in 1932, they finished the trail. And the last piece they had to figure out is above Lake Hamilton. Do you remember Lake Hamilton? Oh yeah, that's a stunning place. Right, and so above Lake Hamilton, there's this gorge in the backside that they had to figure out how to get around. And they build the Hamilton Gorge Bridge. And it's an amazing bridge. And they had to have mules and people carry in all these little pieces one at a time or on you know, basically by hand and by mule. They don't have any vehicles or train cars or anything to carry it all in. And they build this fantastic bridge to go over this gorge. Let me ask you this question, Tony. Do you remember hiking over a fantastic uh, bridge? <laughs> I'm like, that bridge is not there. I, it. I, I, it would have been nice, but I wasn't there. Exactly. And so in 1937, it's wiped out by an avalanche. Oh, man. And so there is this, this is still a difficult place for them to get around. This gorge, it's in the back of Lake Hamilton. And do you have, a, do you have any recollection of how they figured out how to do that? I think they what, blasted through the mountain, right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I think we might have passed what could have been the foundation of that bridge on the way. Wow, that is a good memory. I don't remember that, but you, yeah, there it's possible. Um, and a lot of these projects after the Depression was to keep people employed. It was like WPA. There's different work government work projects that put uh, Americans to work during that time. I think that's part of the labor that was available. I think that's right, that they had an impetus to keep employing people rather than stopping because of the depression, because it was a way to help these people get through the depression. And I think the civilian conservation Corps, the CCC was one of the entities that may have helped, but now I'm, now I'm going beyond my knowledge here and just making things up. So I'll stop. You're right. So they blasted through the hillside and they built, there's a tunnel that we actually went through a short tunnel and that's right where that gorge is. And there's also some overhanging rocks and they had to sort of dig deep into the hillside to make it safe to hike that section of it. Yeah, it, it's an impressive view. Uh, it's kind of like it's reviewing some of the pictures and there, there's a shot of you kind of in the distance. But anyway, yeah. Well, we'll get to the, we'll go back and, and go over the, the route. And I think that'll be helpful to get a sense of, of what this might look like because it is quite a climb from Lake Hamilton up to where this gorge is. And then you keep going up to the Kauai Gap. So this trail was built without a single fatality, which is good. 
And there's been no other cross Sierra single trail built since then. And so it's really, uh, the high Sierra trail is really, was a fantastic feat, is a fantastic feat and offers an experience that is hard to find almost anywhere else, which is no roads, no civilization, no development of any kind crossing an entire beautiful high Sierra, meaning high country Alpine mountain range. In 1934, they added the Bear Paw Meadow High Sierra Camp that's about 12 miles in from the trailhead. And that's really the only, uh, any kind of structure or service type of thing that's out there. But that's a, it's a camp that you need reservations to stay at and it's staffed. It has canvas tent cabins and it's open seasonally in the summer. It's the same idea as the High Sierra Camps in Yosemite. There's a, a loop in Yosemite that has about five of these High Sierra Camps. And so for people who aren't really ready to do full backpacking and set up their own tent and lay out their gear or just don't want to go through the trouble of doing that, this gives you one opportunity to get to within day hiking range of some fantastic places in along the Great Western Divide. So for example, if you go out to the High Sierra camp there, the Bear Paw Meadow, you could day hike up to Lake Hamilton. You could even day hike up to the Kauai Gap and have a view of into the, the Big Arroyo, the big, beautiful valley. Or you could go a slightly different direction and go up Elizabeth Pass and have a view into Dead Man Canyon, which is where Kings Canyon National Park begins. So this Bear Paw Meadow camp is really something that uh, is a, a great thing to have back there to give a different kind of adventurer an opportunity to get into this particular backcountry, though not as far as you can get on the High Sierra Trail itself. It has a stunning view. Is is the great divide or is Western divide? The, the view from their porch is that I remember that having a lunch there. Um, it's amazing. It's just granite as high as you can see. Yeah. We sat down and we took a break on their front porch of the, of the, I think it was the mess hall of yeah. the Bear Paw Meadow camp. And you just sit back and look at the great Western divide in front of you. And it's just an amazing view. It's a great location. If someone, you know, like you're saying, if wants to get in there, you can have a, you know, a place to sleep, cot, some comforts, get food too. It, so it's an amazing location. So great way to access that. So let's talk about hiking the trail and let's start with logistics. And here, Tony, is where I really want your help a little bit. Let's talk through some of the basics of hiking in the high Sierra, because people who are listening to this may come to California to hike this trail, and it may be the first time they've ever hiked in the high Sierra. And so there's several things that I think are important to talk about. One is the weather. How, how would you think about dealing with weather in the high Sierra? Uh, fortunately, you know, if we're talking about like prime time for being able to uh, hike in the Sierra is probably going to be August uh, and September. Even though summertime, July can get some mosquitoes, you can still have snow depending on the elevation. Uh, but fortunately, it's, it's pretty dry. Uh, we haven't really experienced a lot of rain. You still want to have your rain gear. Uh, do you want to talk about like layers of clothing type of how specific yeah, we can, you want to get into? We can get into some of that. But I think just on the weather first, I think you're right. It's mostly dry, yeah. but serious storms can happen. Yeah, afternoon thunderstorms are possible. You should always have rain gear available. Uh, but fortunately, if it's in the afternoon, stuff can dry out pretty quick. But be prepared. Yeah, absolutely be prepared for for serious rain, even if it never happens. And the more you're prepared for it, it seems like the, the fates will decide that the less likely it is to happen. Yeah, If you can just stay warm and dry, uh, you will be comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And one thing to think about is when you have a clear morning, 
that doesn't necessarily tell you anything. You kind of have to look and see how the clouds build through the day. They might get to a point where it seems like it's going once it starts clouding up and you see the towers forming, then you'll have a, you'll have a pretty clear sense that today's one of those days where maybe it looks time to look for somewhere to wait out a storm. Yeah. Because when it comes down out there, it can come down all at once, particularly in the southern Sierra in the early summer. There's this weird phenomenon where storms come up from the south in the southern Sierra in the early summer. And so they places like Sequoia National Park, as opposed to more northerly parts of the range, such as the Tahoe area, can get hammered pretty badly by early summer storms. So that's something to think about. You also mentioned mosquitoes. I, I That's definitely something that's a concern in the Sierra. People are often surprised at how bad the mosquitoes can be. And there's a couple of things I would say there. One is that they happen early season. And people will say, well, what does early season mean? And that can change, right? Yeah. Uh, it depends on how much snow there was. Uh, I kind of tend to look at the season is delayed because it's higher elevation where maybe in July you might go down lower. You go, oh, it's sunny. It's super warm. But it's really kind of spring up there. Things are thawing out. That's exactly right. So you could be at one part of the trail and have no mosquitoes at all where you set up camp because it's a part of the trail where the mosquitoes may have already done their thing and sort of dispersed and finished mating and all of that. And so if there was water there a month ago, but it's dry now, the mosquitoes are probably gone. But then you hike the next day and you camp 2,000 feet higher up, you could be in a horrible storm of mosquitoes if that area has just recently thawed and there's puddles everywhere. Yeah. That's why I think August and September is really kind of that perfect time to be in the Sierras because you've uh, you know kind of eliminated some of the snow, kind of melted, which means mosquitoes have gone away. You're probably further enough into the season that you're not going to probably get snowed on in August and September. Yeah, I think August and September is typically safe, though. I, I will remind you that we hiked the John Muir Trail in August, and it was the worst mosquitoes we had ever experienced because it was a, a year that there was a lot of snow. Yeah, the snowfall was like 130, 140% of normal, so that delayed the season. So I, I think when you're in the Sierras, it's important to see what was the winter like before, so that what's the snow levels like. Exactly. And so the other thing that we just talked about, how there might be mosquitoes at one elevation and there might not be at another I think that's another important thing to think about in the Sierra is the massive elevation changes you can experience in a day. Yeah, and you can also use that elevation or some of the, the topography to protect yourself from mosquitoes, like campsite selection. You want to be away from the water. If it is an area of mosquitoes, if you're up on a ridge line, you get a little more breeze going through. You, you can help it let's mitigate some of that based on site location or camp selection. How do you think about the elevation changes, putting aside the bugs and the weather? How do you think about elevation changes just as far as the ability to, to get where you're going and the hiking intensity? Uh, elevation is, is a very important because if you just look at the, the map and say, okay, here, I, I'm going to do 10 or 15 miles, you really have to look at the elevation change, gain or loss. That you know can make things really huge. Uh, part of it, you look at uh, my travel time or speed might get cut in half going uphill. Consciously on the downhill side, I want to go a little faster to make up for some of that time. So just factor in elevation, very important in, in terms of just rather than look at how many miles, definitely look at the elevation. Okay. And what about stream crossings? For example, early season when the snow's just melted, how, how do you think about that for someone who 
let's think of an, uh, a traveler who has typically been in areas where there's bridges everywhere. Well, that that can, depending on when and where, that can be pretty dangerous. Uh, you got to be very careful. I've kind of, my thoughts have always been, if you're going to do a stream crossing, if you can do it earlier in the day is nicer because when the sun's up, it kind of, you get more melt, you increase the, you know, the flow of the water. Uh, kind of the rules I would say is you, you would go across with your, uh, your hip belt un, unsnapped, your sternum strap unsnapped, just because if you do get pulled into the water, you need to dump that pack. You don't want to get drowned with it. Maybe going as a technique, going somewhat diagonal uphill sideways to hit the water so you can get some firm footing. You know, for us using hiking poles, trekking poles, again, really can help out. Uh, sometimes you can even lock arms and go across and, you know, provide stability to each other. Yeah. And the trekking poles can be great because it can give you three points of contact with the ground. So you can have both trekking poles in front of you upstream and both feet down, and then you can move one foot at a time. Yeah. And that way you always have three points of contact and you're a lot safer. But I don't want to scare listeners into thinking the High Sierra Trail is some uh, dangerous adventure because it's in the Southern Sierra. So although we're talking about things that are helpful throughout the Sierra, the, the water levels and the stream sizes in the Southern Sierra and Sequoia are much less than in other parts of the Sierra. So this on this particular hike, I think the concern for that kind of thing is typically less unless it was a massive winter and you're going in the early season. Yeah. For, for our trip, I actually don't even remember crossing a stream that was of, of any significance. Again, maybe it's timing of the year again, right? I think that's right. Also, I think the main river crossing, the Kern River, has a bridge. So there's really, yeah, it's not a huge issue, but I do think no, it's worth right. mentioning if people go in early season, water can be something to think about. Okay, so let's talk about, we've talked about mosquitoes. What about other animal concerns? And I'll just mention the one that is sort of lingering in the background that's always on everybody's mind. People worry about bears when hiking in the Sierra Nevada. What What is your take on bears? Yeah, that, when I talk to people you know, about backpacking and, and they're not in backpackers themselves, and the number one question I always ask is, what about bears? Oh my God, bears, my. I think bears, they don't want to have anything to do with us. At least the bears that we have here in the Sierras, they don't want to be around you. We've seen them a few times, but a lot lot of times they just want to take off and be left alone. It's just not a concern, really. I've run into them sometimes when they are attracted to food that I'm storing. And so that's the main thing. I think in general, you're right. They're not interested in you. And so if you are separate from your food and your food is stored away from you, the bear is going to be more interested in trying to figure out how to get into your food. And they have, they're not really a danger for the most part to, to you. Obviously, if you ended up to buy some bad accident to end up between a mother and its cub, that could be dangerous. Just like if you were an animal between a human mother and her young child, she would be pretty upset. But in general, bears are not a threat to your safety. The bigger threat is to your food. Yes. I think going with that, we're actually more of a threat to the bears. I mean, if they get used to eating our food, because if we don't store it properly, they end up getting, they're smart. They figured, hey, people, food, you know, they sometimes get put down because yeah. being used to people being careless with their food. So we're kind of more of a danger to them. But yeah, I don't think they're a danger to us. If Just be respectful. Well, for someone who's not come to the Sierra before, what's the food storage situation? 
Food storage situation is uh, in the Sierras often you have to have a uh, bear canister, which can be often a uh, plastic or like a Lexan plastic or sometimes carbon fiber uh, cylindrical canister that you have to uh, uh, put your food in. And since bears really don't have thumbs, they can't really open it up. Uh, it, it It just makes sure that they can't get the food. They can just bat it around. And, uh, you know, it keeps them safe, keeps you fed. That's right. And so you can buy these online or places like REI. Uh, you can also rent them from the park service. So bear can is a must when hiking in the Sierra. It's required. There are bear boxes along the high Sierra trail at some of the campsites. So there are places where the park service has put in larger food storage containers, but you are still required to carry. I wouldn't count on, I wouldn't count on them being available depending on where you're going to end up that night. That's right. It gives you, it gives you more flexibility to not count on them, but it all, it gives you extra security if they're there. One thing I'd probably mention along with that, if uh, someone has not been accustomed to hiking with a bear canister, um, it does take up extra space in your pack. So you probably would have to uh, account for maybe a little bit bigger pack than you might be used to uh, to accommodate for that size. Okay. So when backpacking in the Sierra, what should people be thinking about as far as water, as far as making sure that the water they drink is not going to give them some bacteria or problem for them, cause a problem for them? Uh, I think it's pretty easy today. Uh, and you have chemical treatment like Aquamira, you kind of mix it up, or it can be tablets, you, you know, put it in the water, let it sit for at least 15 minutes, or you could go hours if you're really concerned about viruses. Um, I, I happen to use the Sawyer filter. Uh, it's just pretty straightforward. It's an inline filter. It weighs maybe like three ounces, maybe costs... 30, 40 bucks, maybe. So you've got, you basically put water that you collect from a stream or lake in one bag and you run it through this filter by gravity. Gravity can squeeze it through. I can suck it through like a straw if I need to. So it's really kind of water on demand, but you have to kind of work, work on it a little bit. But I don't think it's even hard. You could even fill up a, a plastic bottle and screw the filter on that has a sport top cap and you just pull it and suck through and yeah, it's just water on demand. You just have to be able to back flush it and to maintain it. And that's, you can do it in the field. It's easy. Yeah. So I think my recommendation is to have some sort of lightweight gravity filter like we're talking about and to have also some tablets uh, or Aquamira, pill, um, Aquamira liquid Aquamira, which is a chlorine dioxide treatment as a backup in case the filter breaks or doesn't work or gets jammed or whatever might happen, that whole system together is going to be pretty lightweight and we'll make sure that you have water that is safe to drink throughout. There are some people in the Sierra who swear that the water is fine to drink no matter what and don't filter and are just more careful about the the sources that they get the water from. I know someone actually who's hiked for many, many years uh, and never filters actually. So for him, it's all about site selection, running water. And fine, I don't think the filter really t- changed the taste. So to me, why take that risk? If you get ill, that'll wreck your trip and it can really endanger your life if you're pretty far out there. So I don't see a reason not to treat. I agree with that. So to get on these trail, to get on the High Sierra Trail and on many trails throughout the Sierra Nevada, you do need a permit, particularly in the national parks. And so that's something to think about. We'll talk about the specifics on Sequoia. But in general, if you're going to hike in the High Sierra, definitely think about getting a permit. We talked 
um, about water, but one of the things that kind of goes with that is where you set up camp. In the High Sierra, unlike a lot of parts of the world, you can camp wherever you want. And that, that gives you a lot of flexibility in how far to hike each day. Really, the only limitation is where is there a water source so that you can, it's obviously much easier to camp near a stream or a river or a lake because then you have water on demand. Although you could always take water in sufficient supply and move on if you want to hike further and just use that same water that evening, which is another option in certain areas. But in general, you have a lot of freedom as far as camping in the High Sierra. Yeah, you, you do. But one thing, the Sierra's just oftentimes has a lot of water. And I think most trails are put there in relationship to where's the water. Water right. is life. Uh, I thought said, looking at the map, knowing where you're maybe going to camp, you're, you're generally going to want to say, hey, I want to be near a, a lake, a stream. It just makes life easier. And it's something kind of pretty to see at the same time. Dry camping, you can do. But it's a lot of work to carry all that extra water. I thought you would just, you just camp near the flush toilets, right? Uh, you know. <laughs> so I, I raised that because I think people are going to wonder who haven't done this kind of backpacking before, or maybe haven't been in the high Sierra where there are no facilities of any kind. Uh, where, where do you go to the bathroom? It's actually pretty easy. You're going to dig yourself a cat hole. I mean, just, you, you go off the trail, just, you know, you want to get away, you dig your hole. It's like six inches deep. I don't know, like four inches wide. Uh, you, you leave your little deposit, you bury it back up, stick a flower or a rock on top of it, move on. Exactly. I won't go into more detail there, but just be aware that that's the general principle. All right. So there are some ranger stations in the High Sierra associated with these parks, but my experience is sometimes, I won't say sometimes, most of the time, there's nobody there. Yeah, I would not risk my life, on, <laughs> gamble my life on, on that station. Uh, yeah, we just really haven't seen them open. One other thing I would mention about the High Sierra is because the Sierra Nevada is in California where the climate is fairly dry compared to most mountain ranges, there is the ability to do cross-country travel, meaning off-trail in lots of the High Sierra where you can just hike from, let's say the trail goes north-south and you want to go to a lake that's a mile to the west. If you have a good map, you can usually do it without there being any trail. There's not going to be too much underbrush getting in your way most of the time. Obviously, the terrain can be steep, and that's something to be thinking about. But it's really, I don't know if it's unique, but it's really, in my experience, unique that there is such easy cross-country travel, although still cross-country travel is very difficult. Yeah, well, I think what's nice about it is, you know, I haven't myself done a lot. I think, you know, maybe we've done once or twice, but uh, you're above tree line, right, in a lot of areas. And that makes it a lot easier to say, look at the topo, I want to go to that particular lake. So your navigation is a lot easier. Um, slower going. I mean, I like trails because you can just fly. It's just brain dead easy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the few times that we've done cross country trips, I think it's been more than once or twice. One of them I remember in particular was by accident, where we were, <laughs> where the tra we couldn't follow the trail anymore. We ended up on descending some cliffs that were not fun. Yeah, let's see. Wait, which trip? That was, was in that? the emigrant wilderness, going oh. down down from yeah. Chewing Gum Lake to Bear Lake. Right. Yeah. Fun times, getting lost. <laughs> All right, and so you can use the availability of cross country travel to see to go hike peaks, to go to some lakes that aren't on your main trail or to some basins where there may be multiple lakes. And there are opportunities to do that on this trip 
and throughout the High Sierra. And that gives you an opportunity to do a layover day if you want. For example, you could camp at the same location for two nights and spend a day exploring a basin or hiking to the top of a peak or doing something like that that um, gives you an extra adventure within your adventure. Yeah, and I think for those people who really enjoy that solitude, one of the aspects that's nice is that you may end up at a lake or a place that you go realize, I might be the only person who visits this place for this entire week or month. That's right. And he does give you that really wilderness feeling uh, to do these kinds of side trips. Let's switch gears now and talk about basic gear that you need for a high Sierra trip. And let me start by saying you can look this up online and get 100 different gear lists. It's easy to figure out a gear list. So I think just from our perspective, we'll talk through some of the basics to be thinking about and not go into too much on specifics. And so if you just look up a three-season mountain backpacking gear list, that's going to be sufficient for the high Sierra, right? Yeah, uh, it, it's not hard, I think, uh, particularly in the Sierras. It's fairly forgiving because, again, the weather is pretty dry for the most part. But always be prepared for rain. For rain. We've discussed already bear cans and filters and food and water. So let's move on past that to talk about... First, you need a pack, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I what would, should people get? I don't mean brand, but in general. Right. In general, so what I would say, though, is you want to get a pack. Buy the pack last probably would be, I think, the suggestion. Uh, why buy it last? Because if you get a big pack, you're going to find a way to fill it, and it's just going to be miserable. So just get all of your gear first, then find that pack that fits it. But it's got to be comfortable. Um, if you are thinking of doing a long hike, I would highly recommend, you know, take it out on a couple weekend trips, make sure it doesn't chafe or rub. You don't want to find out on a long trip, 50 miles out there that you have the wrong pack or gear. That's not the time to find that out. That's right. And this is a trip that's close to, it's about 70 miles yeah. total. So you definitely want to make sure you have a pack that you've used before and that it's comfortable or you're going to have a potentially miserable trip. In general, I would recommend as light as you can get, but for most people who aren't into super lightweight gear, a fairly light but still somewhat conventional internal frame pack is probably the way to go. Most people are going to get an internal frame pack, which in a certain sense is really a duffel bag with a hip belt and shoulder straps and you want that weight to go onto your hips. That's one of the big things. You want to make sure that it fits and transfers to your hips. The older type of uh, backpacks were, that were first out there were external frame packs. So it's just kind of a metal ladder with the, you lash stuff onto it and carry tons of stuff. Uh, but it's, a, it's just considerable. You don't see a lot of them sold. Yeah, I, I think people who still have them still like them. And I don't see any reason not to bring one if that's what, the kind of gear you've had forever that will work on this trip. So after you have a pack, which you know you're comfortable with, then you're going to want you're going to be camping out there because there's no accommodation. So you need some kind of tent. Lighter is better. I don't think we need to say more on that now. But in in essence, the lightest tent that you're comfortable buying that you can set up and provides protection from bugs and rain. And another option is to go with a tarp and bivy if you don't mind sleeping out uh and just basically in a sleeping bag with a cover over your sleeping bag or even just a tarp on the ground with just your sleeping bag that works quite well in the sierra always want to have some sort of tarp in case the rain comes down but uh, because it's such a dry area 
there, there is a real opportunity to just sleep under the stars if that's something you want to do. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, you know, if you're looking for a tent, uh, you're going to be looking at what they call a three-season tent. So that's going to be your spring, summer, fall. If you're really doing winter, that's that's a heavier, more, you know, durable tent, but generally not necessary for normal backpacking. You don't need that extra weight. Okay. And sleeping bag or or a down quilt. So you there's the, op, I think most people would probably opt for a sleeping bag who uh, aren't comfortable using a quilt, which is a quilt basically wraps around three sides of you and doesn't have uh, a bottom to it. The idea being that you're smashing down the insulation in the bottom anyway. So it's sort of extra weight that you don't need to carry. And some people, frankly, who move around a lot when they sleep, a quilt can actually be more comfortable. Yeah, no, definitely. A quilt in a certain way, it's like how you sleep at home. It's it's a blanket kind of, but it has a foot box like a, a sleeping bag. They... Definitely the, the attraction there is that it can be lighter because there isn't the bottom part like you're used to. If you are an active sleeper tossing around, that uh, gives you some freedom. Then maybe the negative on a quilt is if you're not accustomed to it, it can be a little drafty, which can get you a little cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe temperature-wise, if I had only one backpack or a quilt, I would probably look at something that's in the 30 degrees Fahrenheit range. Uh, some people will go of 20, but... If you wear extra clothes, your some of your clothing with you, you can push that temperature down and save some weight if that's important. Yeah, I think that's right. Twenty to thirty degree range, somewhere in there, is going to be fine for the summer in the Sierra. Twenty, you're going to be quite cozy. Thirty, like Tony said, you might need a little bit of extra clothing if it gets very cold. But on most nights, you'd still be fine in the yeah. high summer. And I'd say from our experience or from what I recall. Uh, I always think in the Sierras, no matter what the time of the year is for three season, uh, I always anticipate the possibility of something like 28 degrees Fahrenheit is a low, possibly, whether it's just for a few hours in the evening time at the coldest part of the night. But I always want to prepare for that. Some people are warm sleepers, some sleep cold. So you have to kind of adjust your own biology, if you want to say. And that's your experience. And we're saying 20 to 30 degrees here. We're talking Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. So you can convert that to centigrade if you need to. Okay. Down is definitely best in the Sierra because, because it's a dry mountain range. A down sleeping bag or quilt is going to give you the most warmth for the weight. If you were in an area where it was very humid, and rained all the time, you might want synthetic because it would stay warmer when wet. But in the Sierra, I really think down is what you're looking for. And unless you're allergic to down, I would go right. with down. And the specifics on that is with down, the, the drawback, it's, it's great, it's lightweight. But if it gets wet, you are kind of screwed. It's not going to dry out very easily. So you lose all of your ability to stay warm. So keeping that, that bag dry is critical. Okay. And so you'd all, you're also going to need a sleeping pad. I won't go into specifics there, but there are lots of options there. And kitchen, which essentially is a stove, a pot, a spork. And that'll depend on the kinds of meals, sort of what gear you need there, depending on what you, you use for meals for backpacking. And I don't think we need to go into too many specifics, but just to know you're going to have to bring yeah. everything you need to prepare your own food. Hot meal is a wonderful thing at the end of the day. That's Hot right. drink. It's a good thing. Yeah. Some people can't go without their tea and coffee and and plus it'll warm you up. So that's great to have all of that. Clothing. Generally, you want light and synthetic. Don't bring too much extra 
Tony and I tend to not bring anything extra. <laughs> I tend to think in, in clothing, it's about three or four layers. You can make those layers whatever you want. Uh, kind of quickly run through them. I think you have your, your base layer, which you hike in, which could be a synthetic uh, or merino wool shirt, short sleeve, long sleeve, or hoodie is nice. From there, uh, if I'm getting a little bit chilled hiking, uh, I like a wind shirt that is somewhat optional. I call that the fourth optional piece, which is uh, a non-breathable, light, generally kind of a plasticky type of uh, jacket. It's nice. It allows you to hike when it's windy or cool, but not to a point where I'd, I would overheat. Uh, I want an insulating layer, which could be a synthetic or down or a fleece. Very. The idea is I stop hiking, whether it's for lunchtime or at the end of the day, I'm in the shade. It, it cools down, you, so you want to stay warm. And then the, the other one would be, I would say, rain gear being your fourth layer. Okay, that makes perfect sense. In general, you're planning for warm days and pretty cold nights. Yeah, absolutely. Temp- expect te- temperature fluctuations. And a light puffy, warm hat, warm socks, all essential, even if it looks like the weather's going to be beautiful because it will get cold at night. Do not forget the hat. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned hat. The hat is key. And so what do you, what do you think about trekking poles? Uh, for myself, uh, I've always used them. I honestly don't think I could complete the trips without them. I don't know if it's like, oh, I got weak knees. And, and for for me, it's, it's a multi use piece of gear if I, I can use it for my shelter tarp you know you can use that for the poles there we always kind of say it's it's good to have four legs like a mule be the mule it's much more stable uh safety i know that there have absolutely been times where i'm exhausted i'm stumbling around and, and maybe i should be smart and stop but i'm not smart i just keep following you <laughs> so uh, it, it saved me from uh, stumbling and falling down so for me um uh, especially going downhill. I don't think people realize this. Uphills is hard. Downhill just jams your knees up. And those hiking poles really can uh, make a big difference in your comfort. I agree with all of that. And then also you obviously have to think about hiking shoes, wear something that you've worn extensively before so that you know that you're not going to get blisters from them. Tony and I subscribe to the idea of lighter is better and basically go with uh, lightweight trail running shoes as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, lighter, nicer, but <laughs> definitely <laughs> lesser margin of error for safety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there one in one trip we did together, Tony's shoe completely fell apart in the middle of the hike and he was basically shoeless by the end. Yeah. Don't, you know, I should have, I, there was shoes were at like 50% wear when I first started. And I thought, oh yeah, I could just be cheap and I'll, I'll make it. No, it failed miserably. You also need to bring essentials that you would bring on any hiking trip, like a med kit, headlamp, all the little things. I'm not going to go into all the details here. They're going to be on any list you look up, but just keep in mind, there's a lot of little things that you need to account for. What about a GPS device? I've never had one. I, I think GPS, it, it depends. If you're following a trail, uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's necessary uh, because, uh, well, at least in the Sierras, they're very well marked trails because they are traveled pretty heavily. And when you come to an intersection, you whip out the map and you go, where am I at? You know, is, GPS is great. Maybe if you're getting lost, maybe if you're going cross country. 
I think it's a piece of comfort, maybe. That's just my opinion, is that sometimes we pack our fears, and if I'm afraid of being lost, GPS is great. And some of them you can communicate to loved ones at home uh, using the device to let them know you're okay. So it's personal choice. I agree. I think people who rely on them probably still need to know where they're going, how to get there. You can't, you don't want to over rely on the, on a GPS device. Yes. You still want, I mean, I, even if you had GPS, you should absolutely bring a map. Oh, sure. Batteries yeah. fail. Stuff gets broken. If you fell on it or it gets lost, uh, always have a backup for something critical. Like where am I going? I, I agree. I, and I should say, I don't bring a device beyond my phone. My phone, I can download onto my phone. I download maps of the areas I hike in now, and it's pretty easy to do. And you can look at those offline. So you don't need to have cell connection to do it. So for me, the phone is the everything device. It's the camera. It's the, it's the GPS. That said, I plan trips ahead on a map and make sure I know where I'm going and where I'm planning to stop most days with some flexibility built in. But in general, the GPS if you have it on your phone or a separate device, should be a backup. Yeah, I mean, I, I carry a, a map, Topa map uh, just like you. And honestly, I rarely look at it. I just keep following the guy in front of me and, look, you know, if the shoe color is blue and I follow the guy with the blue shoes. So I, I rarely God, whip out the map. You drive me nuts when you do that. So we, when Tony doesn't even open the map the whole trip. Yeah, he'll, he'll come bad. to He'll come to a junction and he'll take a picture of the trail junction sign and then he'll go start walking the wrong direction. And I'll say, why are you going there? Well, I don't know. I thought that's where you were going. I need adult supervision at all times. I am Tony's map. Yes. I'm okay. the photographer. He's the guide. Okay. So let's shift gears now and talk directly about the hike, the High Sierra Trail, the hike that we're here today to talk about. Why should someone do this hike? And let me put it in these terms. If I'm going to go all the way to California in the Sierra Nevada, shouldn't I hike the John Muir Trail? I think the John Muir Trail is amazing, but the the High Sierra Trail, it can be done in a shorter period of time, which is nice. Interestingly, you have to tell me if this is true. I think the reason we took the trip is that you couldn't get a permit from Mount Whitney. So you thought, hey, if I hike 70 miles, they'll let me up on the mountain for free without a permit. Is that true? Yeah, it might have been. I don't even remember at this point, but that sounds right. That sounds yeah. like something I would do. Know how crazy your host is. Yes. <laughs> so I, I agree with you. It's it's a shorter hike, so it's about 70 miles total, and the John Muir Trail's 211 plus the downhill from Whitney, about 220 total. And so it's much shorter, but that makes it something you can do in one week. Absolutely. I think the accessibility and doing something like the John Muir Trail, a lot of people will take 20, 22 days of doing 10 miles uh, a day. So this certainly gives you that Sierra experience. You still get the top of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest mountain in the lower you know, continental United States. Um, and it's just beautiful. Yeah. It's one of the things it's less crowded. It's like you were mentioning the permit yes. issue. So you to get a permit going from the east side is hard because of the Mount Whitney lottery. It's impossible to get permits. The other thing is the John Muir Trail. It's impossible to get permits for. Yes. I mean, the John Muir Trail is amazing, but it's you and lots of other people. I mean, that, that's an aspect of it. So Right. So if you want solitude, this, yeah. this trail, once you get over the Kauai Gap, it is really remote all the way until Crabtree Meadow where you hook up with the John Muir Trail people. 
I want to say probably on one of the, after going across the Quiet Gap and down the Arroyo, I, I think we saw two people all that one day. I think that's right. I still remember it. This was crazy teeth. This was 13 <laughs> years ago. And I remember still the people we came across on that day. That is bizarre to me. Yeah. <laughs> memories. That's how striking the memories can be of these trips. And as you mentioned, it's just as beautiful, if not more, than than the John Muir Trail. So you're not missing anything at all in that respect. And there's one more feature that I think makes the High Sierra Trail worth all of it, worth all the trouble. Worth, Which worth is? The hot bath in the middle of the trip. Yeah, yeah. When we were first, the hot springs. Yeah, yeah there's hot a hot springs. spring along the Kern River in the middle of this hike. So you are basically 30 miles roughly 50 kilometers from a trailhead and you can take a wonderful hot bath next to a beautiful river in a glacial canyon. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't what I thought it would be. <laughs> when I first, you know, we were hiking and it was just a long arduous day getting there. I had visions of like being a snow monkey, this round natural <laughs> pool of hot water. And it's a fence, three sides fenced in with a concrete trough yeah. It does some have some algae. There's a rubber cork with some cloth. You jam into this pipe that actually brings the water to the hop spring. So looking at it, it was like this great disappointment. But man, when I was in that thing just soaking, it was the best ever. Totally agree. It doesn't look like much, but once you get in, you're in heaven. Oh. All right. So permits. You have to reserve the trailhead in advance if possible. Walk-ups are possible, but they're not guaranteed because 60% of the permits go to reserved uh, people who reserve, people who make reservations, I should say. And then the remaining 40% are available for walk-ups, but you never know if you'll get one. So you have to have extra time if you're planning to get a walk-up in case you don't get it the first day you try. And you'd really need to be there a couple days in advance to get walk-up permits because they're available the day before and you'd probably want to be camping even the night before that. Yeah, unless you're retired and you have lots of free time. If you're making a special trek out to California, get the permit. Okay, the permits are available in March for the summer season, and that can change, so always check the park website for the latest rules. So we've talked about this being a summer hike. What's the window for this hike? Uh, the window for the hike, I guess it could be as early as July. I haven't been out there. Uh, I'd say July on the early side to September, maybe early October. But, you know, like I said, August, we've done a lot of ours during August, September, I think is always best. I think August, September are the high season and they're really the best weather to be out there. September is great if you can do it because... You have less people because kids who are in school are no longer out there. So if you want some solitude, September can be after Labor Day can be great. One thing I'll mention, though, is I think this is really it is a July, I think, to October hike. So I think you can do it in those earlier months. And I should mention I'm taking my son out to this area next month. We're recording this in 2020 and we have a permit for July, early July. But we haven't had a big winter. It was a pretty... Mild, mild snow season. Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty mild winter. And as a result, I'm hopeful that it won't be a problem. And we're going to try to get over the Kuwaita Gap without any snow on it. And we'll see what happens. Yeah, check with the rangers. I mean, if you're planning the trip, maybe just before, you know, call the rangers. They're really good about uh, giving you any information they know about the conditions out there. I will absolutely do that. And I agree that 
October is a great opportunity also, but with October, you have to follow the weather reports because there can be massive snowstorms that come in in October, but it could also be completely clear and just a little bit cooler than during the summer. So that's an opportunity if you also want to, to do it when there's less people out there. In June and early July, depending on the season, you could have snow on passes, you could have tons of mosquitoes. And so those are things to, to think about. For navigating this one, there's really one easy answer. And that is the Tom Harrison map for the Mount Whitney high country. Yeah, that, it's a super easy map. It's highlighted and uh, they show the points and the mileage between each dot or point there. Super easy. And it covers, this one map covers the entire trail, which is pretty great for a trail that covers 70 miles of high mountain country to have one map so you don't have to be flipping between pages. You can just fold the map differently as you go from day to day. So let's talk about before the trip, what you need to be doing. I think the most challenging thing for most people for this trip is going to be if they start in the western side of the Sierra, how do they get back? To, if they have a car on the western side, how do they get back to the western side? Yeah, transportation. And I guess some people, because you get to Whitney, I guess they could catch some type of ride to LA, maybe and catch an airplane. I think some is that what people would do? Yeah, see, you don't even know because when we did this trip, we had the benefit of a retired father. Yes, we had the uh, kind of a limo-ish kind of experience. Yes. The Pendry Express. So my, my father, who's retired, picked us up on the eastern side of the Sierra and drove us all the way back, which was about a seven-hour drive, all the way back over the Sierra um, and to the back to our car on the western side. So if you can find somebody who is willing to shuttle you, a retired relative who you can pay and take out to dinner, uh, you might have a great opportunity there to get back as a shuttle. But if you don't have that, there are other options. One is you could have two cars. If you had multiple people hiking, you could leave one car on the east and then drive to the west, hike the trail, and then come back around to pick right. up your car in the west. So two cars, even though it's an extra day, essentially, to do the shuttle for this hike, it's worth it. And two cars is probably a great option. There are shuttles and buses. So as you mentioned, if you're coming in to LAX or to SFO, if you're coming into the San Francisco or LA, the two major cities closest, you can use public transportation. But again, you have to build in a lot more time to do time. that. Time And there's the obviously the expense. Yeah, well, there uh, public transportation is going to be a lot cheaper than renting a car or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like sit for all those days, you know. Yeah, exactly. Getting there from L.A. is probably five hours or so to the western uh, starting point. From San Francisco, I think it's a little longer, maybe five and a half. The major city you go through from San Francisco on the way is Fresno. Coming from L.A., you end up going through Visalia and Three Rivers, the small town that we mentioned. Three Rivers actually today is kind of an artist-centric uh, area. It had an artist colony in the 1960s. And so that's something maybe to stop and see if the studios are open. I think the best option when you get up to to into the park is to spend the night before at Lodgepole Campground. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, you know, yeah, it, it's nice to have time to acclimate, have some downtime, get used to it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a long day. If you drive there, hit the trail and just hike out for six or five hours, it, that, that's a long day. Yeah, I agree. I think to acclimatize, you really do want to have one night up there and 
you've got this option of a, there's several campgrounds in the area, but I think Lodgepole is closest to Crescent Meadow where the trail starts. There's a permit office there. There's a grocery store. The General Sherman tree and the giant forest grove that we mentioned is in between Lodgepole and the trailhead. So you, I think it's worth it. If you're going to go all the way to Sequoia, go see the giant forest. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was something to kind of kick back and enjoy while we're in camp. It's not like you're bored to death there. There are things to do. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, if uh, it's, it's worth the, the time. So I would make time, get there a day early, camp at Lodgepole, see the giant forest. And then the next day you have a full day of hiking ahead of you starting out at Crescent Meadow. One thing to possibly plan for is when you get to the other side, whatever your situation, you may want to think about what you're going to be doing for accommodations there. A couple of options. One is Whitney Portal Campground right at the uh, other entrance where you're going to come out as your exit has campsites typically available. And I think when we did this trip, we actually got a campsite there. Well, yeah, we planned on seven days of hiking and we did this in four. So yeah. we had a couple <laughs> days extra hanging out there waiting for our ride. <laughs> we didn't hang out. I think our ride showed up the next day. I think we only yeah. spent, maybe we spent two nights the night we got there. Yeah. And then my dad, and, a half. and then my dad showed up and we spent one more night. So he didn't have to turn around that same day. Yeah. But if you can plan out the timing, you could reserve a campsite. If not, you could show up and hope that one's available. If not, you can get down to Lone Pine, which is the nearest town, and there are motels there. And onward transportation. You can take buses from Lone Pine to Mojave, to L.A., back over to the western side. There's ways to get from there. You can arrange a shuttle to pick you up up at Whitney Portal. I think also, while I don't generally recommend hitchhiking anywhere, I think this hitchhike is not a bad one from Whitney Portal to Lone Pine because it's exclusively it's, hikers. It's hikers. It's, yeah, it, you know, there's kind of, that's the only reason to be up there. You're, you're hiking. So yeah, they're, they're coming down. I'm sure you can pick up a ride. No problem. So we've mentioned a couple of times that this is about a 70 mile hike. I've seen a lot of different numbers, but they're all in the ballpark of around 72 miles total, which is about 116 kilometers from Crescent Meadow to Whitney Portal. If you look up the distance of this hike, you'll find a lot of sources that say the hike is 63 and a half miles or somewhere in the 62 or 60 range. Now, why are they saying that? I'm guessing that they're not accounting for coming down off the top of Mount Whitney. Yeah, which is a kind of a crazy thing to, to do because you get to, so the technical end of the High Sierra Trail, as well as the technical, what is technically the end of the John Muir Trail is the top of Mount Whitney. But you get to the top of Mount Whitney, you still have 11 miles downhill of walking to get back to a trailhead. Yeah, you got to get off the trail back to your civilization. Yeah, nobody's so. going to pick you up on a, on a helicopter up there. There's no tram to take down. Yeah, just because it says it ends somewhere, don't think that's the end of your trip. Right. So all in, you're looking at just over 70 miles or around 115 or 16 kilometers. And you mentioned that we did this trip in four days, but really, how long should this trip take? Well, again, on pacing, if you're sane or normal, maybe 10 miles a day. So, you know, seven days is very, very reasonable, I think, for a traditional backpacker, 10, 10 miles a day. And I should mention that we start. We took this trip early on in our uh, evolution of becoming lightweight backpackers. Yeah. And as a result, we we actually packed food for seven days, but it only took us four. So we were going faster than we had in past years because we were using equipment that allowed us to travel quicker. And we just didn't 
have great estimates of how long things would take. We were also pushing it because we thought it was fun to hike late into the evening. And but, but that was also the right call. If you're, you know, plan, you know, plan to have extra food, right? Yes. Uh, have plenty of food. If you end up early, no problem. You don't want the reverse. That's right. <laughs> so I think seven days is a good plan. And look, that'll probably give you a day to do a side trip. If you want to yeah. go, for example, at the Kauai Gap, you could go explore the Nine Lakes Basin, or there are other places you can go along this trip. You could go up to Little Five Lakes out of uh, or Big Arroyo. You could do lots of different things, or you could take a layover day at the hot spring and spend a lot yeah. of time chilling. Or if you just say, hey, I want a two-hour lunch. You know, exactly. jump into a lake or a stream and just sun dry and just relax. doesn't have to be, you know, a death march. <laughs> exactly. So that's what I would plan. I would plan for a week and, and you can build in some, some cushion there. So let's talk about the itinerary of this trip. As we said, it's west to east, finishing at, in the Mount Whitney area, though not really at the top of Mount Whitney because you have to get off the mountain still. So it actually finishes at Whitney Portal. The High Sierra Trail starts at Crescent Meadow at Giant Forest, or next to Giant Forest, and it's at 6,850 feet, the High Sierra Trailhead. The trail, there's a sign there that marks the beginning of the trail, and the trail is well marked throughout, as you mentioned earlier, Tony, but I will say that trails in the Sierra are not marked like they are in a lot of the world. They're not marked like they are in Europe in particular, and they really only mark them at junctions. Yeah, it, you, that's why it's very, I think, pulling off that map, when you get to a junction, make sure you are where you think you are and don't take a wrong turn at Albuquerque, <laughs> which we've done before. Exactly. And I think that a lot of people who are used to hiking in other regions may be used to more frequent, um, for example, blazes where there's a particular sort of like flag or color scheme of a two or three colors put together that mark the continued route of a trail in places like Europe, those, those show up sometimes every hundred yards or every few hundred yards and often where there's no trail junction at all. But in hiking in the high Sierra, there are trail markers and they are marked well where they are marked, but they're not marked frequently. It's really just at junctions or some place that might be uh, really difficult to follow the trail. And that's because there's a, a sense in wilderness in the United States that the more you can keep it like wilderness, the better. And the more you can not remind people that this is a park run by a government bureaucracy, the more they can feel like they're out there really getting away from it all. And so trails are not marked as well as they are in many other places. So we mentioned Bear Paw Meadow. That's really your first major landmark, right? You, you start out at Crescent Meadow, you follow along a canyon. It's about 12 miles into Bear Paw Meadow. And we've talked about that they, you must have reservations to stay at the hostel there, but there's also a backpacker camp there, but I've, we didn't stay at it. I, I've heard it really doesn't have any views. No, it, I remember when we were walking in at the, you're talking again, the High Sierra camp there. It's before, it's off to the left of the trail before you get to the actual um, the camp. camp area or where the lodge where the, you know, the kitchen area is. It was just a flat, very open, exposed spot. So you could make it work in a pinch. I wouldn't want to be there forever. Okay. So it's a good first night option if you're exhausted yeah. and it's getting late in the day. But another option, which I think is the better one, is Hamilton Lake. Yes. If you can make that extra push, well worth it. And that's about 14 miles in, so over 20K to get there. Yeah. And it's a little bit of uphill at the end. 
uh, it's about three miles or 5K past Bear Paw Meadow Camp. But it's it's just, so let me back up and say, we talked about Bear Paw Meadow itself having a beautiful view, but that's only from the camp, the High Sierra Camp, not from where the backpackers stay. Right, right. So you're not going to have that view as much if you stay there. But at Lake Hamilton, or at Hamilton Lake, I should say, you have a, a fantastic, beautiful glacial cirque you know, surrounded on three sides by the Great Western Divide and just a beautiful lake in the middle. Yeah, it, it's really picturesque. I mean, there's kind of some sandy, granity area at the shoreline and just almost 180 degrees wrap around. You just have this Im- immense granite uh, mountain circling the lake and you have this feeling like, wow, I get to have dinner here. This is amazing. And so we joked that that you don't have a flush toilet along this route, but there is actually a toilet seat. If you remember at Hamilton Lake, I took a picture of it. Yes. There's a a pit toilet that has a low maybe two or three sided uh, fencing around it. And you uh, get to do your business looking at the, the, this amazing view. I think it's the best view I've ever had while doing that business. Yes. Without a doubt. And there's camping there, of course, just uh, up on the granite around the lake. There's some good spots. And there's also bear boxes there. So if you're early in your trip and you have food that barely fits into your bear can or doesn't quite fit, mm-hmm. if you stop at Hamilton Lake, you will have uh, availability of a place to store food safely. There was a few number of people there. So it is, I think, kind of a bit of a destination. There were some a- other people. Absolutely. There. Because it's so beautiful and because yeah. it's relatively close to the western side of the trail, it's it's a place that people try to get to either on their first or second day. I think there's a creek about five miles in that some people camp at that we camped at once coming mm-hmm. out on a different trip. So some people that might be day two to getting to Hamilton, but for most people it could be a long day one. The view, so you're in, you're sort of in the Great Western Divide when you're at Hamilton yes. Lake. Yeah. And just a little bit about the Great Western Divide. This is in the Southern Sierra there are two crests of the mountain range. In the northern Sierra, there's really just the eastern escarpment, the eastern escarpment going up to the crest, and the highest point of the Sierra follows the eastern ridge of the Sierra. But when you get to the southern Sierra, it splits, and you've got this western part, and then you still have the eastern part where Mount Whitney is. And so it's it's got summits that are over 13,000 feet, so over 4,000, or almost 4,000 meters. It's really an impressive range, and it's got high, serrated, sort of angular, sharp mountain peaks. It's really beautiful. And when you get into Hamilton Lake, you're right in the heart of it. Yeah. That, that view from the, uh, the High Sierra Camp, I, I distinctly remember looking out at the, that, that Great Divide there. Because you're right, it's canyon or going in. And so you see a lot of trees and you see some granite, but you're hit with this imposing, Im- impressive wall and I just had not seen anything really like that before. So, I, yeah, definitely a vivid memory. So after Hamilton, you head uphill and through the, the gorge area with a tunnel that we talked about earlier. And then you get to Precipice Lake, which is a really crystal clear lake near the Kauai Gap. And then you go through the Kauai Gap, which is your way across the Great Western Divide. And that's at 10,700 feet or 3,260 meters And as we mentioned, that's the lowest route through the Great Western Divide. And when you get up there, you have a beautiful view down Big Arroyo. Big Arroyo. That's that's something. I go back to Precipice Lake. I remember one thing that stood out was the the water there. I don't know if you remember. It was kind of that 
emeraldish, greenish, blue, just unreal colors to that water. Absolutely. It's it's fresh as can be. Yeah. If you're going to drink water without filtering it anywhere, which I don't <laughs> recommend, <laughs> that might be the place. Uh, so you get to the top of Kauai Gap and you look to the right and you see down this beautiful, Big Arroyo is just a, a big, wide canyon. Yeah. Kind of sparsely treed, so it has a. It just gives you a, a immense view. It's it's glacial, if I if I recall. Do you think it's a glacier? It has to be carved by a glacier. It's, it's, it's yeah. very U shaped. But I think what is stunning about it is the the width of it. I mean, you just see from side to side. It's almost like, you know, as they say, as far as the eye can see, it's this big, you know, arroyo. That's right. Well, the in Spanish, arroyo means small creek. creek. So well, that's the creek. Not, it's not small. <laughs> so the arroyo is the thing running down the middle, but yeah. the the valley itself is called Big Arroyo. And if you look to the left from from when you're at the top of Kauai Gap, you have the Nine Lakes Basin, which we I think you can see maybe the first lake from up there, but we didn't explore that. That could be a good layover day. There's several lakes up in a wide open basin, and that's just the kind of thing I was talking about earlier, where it's an opportunity to, if you want to have a layover day, to spend some time exploring an area that not a lot of people spend time in. Beautiful high Sierra, granite, lots of lakes. It'd be easy to get to because it just was open. It was a straight view. It wasn't really obscured. It'd exactly. It'd be very easy to get to that. So then you head down the Big Arroyo. So the Big Arroyo starts at mile 23. And you've got up until mile 31 to get to Moraine Lake, which is your next really good stopping point. Although you could camp anywhere along the Big Arroyo. There's because there's water and there's a, a stream running down the middle. It's available as a camping spot if you need it. And it's a beautiful spot. So there's no reason you couldn't camp there. But as you go down the Big Arroyo, you then head uphill out of the Arroyo, out of the Big Arroyo, and you end up on a plateau called the Chagupa Plateau. And that's where Moraine Lake is, which is a really beautiful, pleasant lake, has bear boxes, and that's at 9,300 feet, about 2,835 meters. And it's a great opportunity for another place to stop. If we were smart, we would have stopped there. I know. I still remember (laughs) we got there at about three in the afternoon, and it was perfect to just relax and have a chill afternoon and we stupid idiots we just kept hiking like do you want to stop and we looked at each other no just keep going yeah so we hiked downhill from there and from there you drop into kern canyon which is just deep and you go from nine thousand three hundred feet down to six thousand seven hundred thirty feet which is about 2050 meters when you get to the junction with the trail going up kern canyon Kern Canyon has the Kern River running down the middle of it. It's the upper Kern River, a river that goes all the way into the San Joaquin Valley ultimately, uh, but is you know, this is the most upper portion of that river. And again, it's another glacially cut uh, feature. I think it was very U-shaped again. Exactly. It's deep. It's glacially yeah. carved. It's between the crests of the Eastern Sierra and the Great Western Divide. And it's really lush, surprisingly lush. Lots of trees and forest and underbrush. And it's just quiet and beautiful, really a neat spot. And when you get a few miles up that canyon, you come to the Kern Hot Springs that that we mentioned before. Do you remember hiking in that that evening? It was a a late one, but there was these like fist-sized rocks that were used to fill the trail. And it just was killing my feet. It was just a long day. It was just a long day. Yeah, the trail construction on that part when you f- hit the canyon was 
broken up granite and it was hard on our feet for sure, especially at the end of a long hike. But once you get to Kern Hot Springs, you're on soft uh, dirt. Duff. Yeah. yeah. And it's just easy walking at that point, slight uphill grade, but not much at all as you go up the canyon. And the hot spring has campsites with bear boxes that are close to uh, where the actual hot spring is. So that's a great place to spend an evening and to enjoy the hot spring either in the evening or in the morning. From there, you go nine miles up the canyon to Junction Meadow, which, as I said, it's a slow uphill, and you end up at about 8,080 feet, 2,463 meters, and that's at mile 46, roughly. It's a lightly forested area, kind of open with bare boxes. Another, it looks like a really nice place to camp. Right. So, yeah, this is coming out of, yeah, that morning we'd spent uh, time, we, we had a delayed start because we decided to, you know, take advantage of the uh, hot spring and uh, we were going up the switchbacks coming out of the Kern Canyon. And that's yeah. kind of where I had my uh, incident. <laughs> Do oh, you remember yeah. that? Was that on this trip? It was on, uh, I think it was, it was on this trip. Okay. Well, let me back that up though. I think this is a story <laughs> worth telling. At Kern, at Kern Hot Spring, we, we were the only ones there. There was nobody there. And we get up in the morning and we get up fairly early and we go to use the hot spring and there's a person in the hot spring. Yeah. No one around for miles and this guy shows up out of nowhere. <laughs> so we had to sit there and wait like an hour while this guy took his morning bath. Right. And, you know, we're we're as eager as chipmunks to get going. And, uh, and we ended up sitting there. And while we were waiting, Tony slipped off a rock and hurt his leg. Yeah, I, t- I jammed my left toe, which still hurts to this day. Yeah. Well, it's a little reminder of that trip. Yeah, don't be an idiot. Yeah. But ultimately, we did get to use the hot spring. Uh, this, and this person, I think, had worked in a trail, trail crew. crew. They were yeah. part of the trail crew. Yeah. So downriver, there was a crew that was working on the trails, and they had a camp. And so we just hadn't seen those people and didn't know they were camped relatively close by, as I understood it. That's the way he explained it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so then from Junction Meadow, you're right. You start heading uphill. And this is where... It, it, it's, it can be hot and exposed. Hot and exposed and a, l- a little windy. Not a lot, but it was just, well, you know, blown, you know. Because it, it's exposed. There's exposed, the so it's just drying me out like beef jerky. <laughs> and we got up there. This is when Tony decided, well, he basically came close to complete delirium, probably heat stroke. I probably yeah, shouldn't have let him keep going. Either exhaustion or stupidity. But, yeah, I mean, I, I remember I was try- I had trouble trying to find my camera, which was on my hip belt pocket. I couldn't find that. And I thought we were going to Mount Lassen, not Whitney. I was just getting very confused. I think you said Mount Shasta. Shasta? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just discombobulated. Um, and you were I was bleeding, nauseous. And you were bleeding, I got, out, bleeding of, out of a bloody nose. Yeah, you were dripping blood out of your nose. And uh, when we stopped on the trail, to there was uh, this stream going across the trail. Yes. We were getting water. I literally stumbled and fell on my face pretty much. And then we stopped for a little while where there's some horses that were there. Yes. And we gave, gave you a chance to recuperate. And I remember specifically telling you we should probably just camp here. And you decided right. we should keep going. Right. Well, okay. So earlier you said, why do I keep hiking with you and and honestly i would say this was the moment that <laughs> sticks in my mind why all right and, and this is a good thing I, I was nauseous i was just not good okay and but us being kind of type a pushing it we want to get the miles in i remember you specifically saying hey look we're ahead of schedule we, we have no reason we can just chill and stay here that says a lot because knowing we both want to get to that goal, go really fast. 
but to not make, you know, to, to give me that time. Now, on my part, uh, I don't know, we spent maybe an hour, 45 minutes. I, I remember having a, a bar, drinking, laying down. And I said, hey, I'll just keep going. And honestly, I don't think I remember the last three miles after that. I was just looking at the ground, shuffling like an old man, using my hiking poles like a, a walker. It was a pretty stupid decision on my part. Well, it worked out in the end. So then the next major landmark is Crabtree Meadow, which we didn't camp at on this trip, but we did on the John Muir Trail. And that's at 10,660 feet, which is about 3,250 meters, and it's roughly mile 55. And so this is where things change a little bit. When you get into the Whitney zone, there's a new rule that applies. And what is that rule? Uh, you have to use a wag bag. Yeah, they used to have solar toilets out in these areas, areas where... They were pit toilets where there was a solar thing that would essentially compact the waste in a way that they could remove it with helicopters at some point. But they decided that was too much trouble, which I understand. But because from Crabtree all the way to the Whitney portal, there's a lot of people, more people than on the rest of this hike. They require that you take a bag to to go to the bathroom in and you need to carry it with you. It's basically like a plastic bag with kitty litter in it. Yes. With a little towelette. I mean, hell, they could have put a mint in there. Really? That would have been nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, a little unpleasant, but just get, got to double bag it. That's what I'd say. Have, bring another bag to double bag your, your doo-doo. That may have been the first, the most important thing you said on this entire podcast. Uh, yes, you don't want an explosion. No. So double bagging is a good idea. And so you can pick up, I think when you get to Crabtree, there's a place where you can pick up these wag bags. It was just a plastic tub, actually, with a lid, uh, storage bin, and you just grabbed one and you popped it in your pack and you kept going. And as I said, or as Tony said, take more than one. Yeah. Okay. And so this is where the High Sierra Trail intersects with the Pacific Crest Trail going from Mexico all the way to Canada and intersects with the John Muir Trail coming from Yosemite Valley all the way down to Mount Whitney. And so, again, there's going to be more people there than what you've seen on the rest of the trail. There's also bear boxes at this point. If you go past Crabtree, the next campsite, which is where we camped on the High Sierra Trail, is Guitar Lake, which is really, I think, a cool spot because it is a true alpine lake. It is really high up. It's It's got kind of sandy beaches and rocks, and there's no trees. You're above tree line at that point. Some sc- little flat, scrubby grasses growing there. And just really. just yeah. a neat lake, and mm-hmm. it's in a beautiful setting in the, in the shadow of Mount Whitney. And so that was our last camp before climbing Whitney, and that's really the last place you can camp. Yeah. And it's a good place to camp Crabtree and... Guitar Lake are both good places to camp because they get you close enough to get up onto Whitney and either most of the way out or all of the way out the next day. Actually, something adding to that, just I think for trips in the Sierras, a a lot of, I think where you camp is about positioning yourself for the next pass that you might have to go over about what time and when. So I think where you set camp is very important. That's exactly right. And this is the place that you want to be if you want the best opportunity to get up early and get up on Whitney and get down that same day or to get to a comfortable campsite on the other side the same day. And you, so you come up from the next day, if you've camped there or if you're coming up from Crabtree, the next significant spot is you'll hit trail crest, which is the crest of the Eastern Sierra. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a pass at 13,480 feet. So over 4,100 meters. It's a, and then at that point, 
you're connecting with the Whitney Portal Trail and the way out. Right. But you're only about nine miles from the way out there. And that's in, if you're going to come all this way, you need to go to the top of Mount Whitney. You're going to go to the top. Don't, don't cheat yourself of that. I will say, though, coming out of Guitar, one of my memories about that, it was that it was fairly, because you're in the shadow of the mountain, right? Yeah. It's fairly cold. So I remember we had the, our gloves on, maybe even rain jacket. We, we, had, the, we had the layer up, I think. It was, oh, absolutely. Starting very early, though. We started very early. I don't know if it's 6 o'clock or 7. I think you want to start early because... Yeah. The weather at this altitude can be problematic later in the day. It's always good to get to a, a peak and give yourself lots of time to get off of it if things turn poorly. So, and also if there's less daylight, you always want to give yourself more daylight. Yeah. I always think of like getting to the top of Whitney and kind of in my mind, I, I want to be up there by noon, hang out for maybe an hour, then start my descent. Uh, so I think that's right. We've we've each been up there, been up there Three times? I've been three. Yeah, two together, and you went once on a separate trip, and I went once on a separate trip. Okay, so it's a two-mile hike from that junction at Trailcrest to get to the summit. It's still a walk-up. This is not a technical climb by any means. It's a busy trail. They They issue lots of permits, and so even though they issue less permits than people apply for, there are a lot of people up there, and even if you're going up fairly early in the morning, you're still going to see a fair number of other hikers, mostly coming up from the eastern side, right. from Whitney Portal. When you get to the summit of Mount Whitney, you're at 14,494 feet. You are at the highest point in the lower 48 states of the United States, and that's 4,418 meters. And as Tony mentioned, if the weather's nice, spend some time up there. It's a beautiful spot where you can overlook the Great Basin, and I'll see all the way into Death Valley to the east and see all the way across the Sierra to the west to the Great Western Divide. And getting there early does help both because of weather and just less people. And it's a pretty big granite shelf. There's plenty of room to to hang out up there. And there's even a little summit hut that they've built as an emergency shelter in case weather comes in. Right. I think maybe something to talk about here is also is the fact of elevation, the impact of elevation on your ability to function. Is you know, you know it's not just looking at the topo map, say how many miles, right? Elevation. So part of it, I remember going up there. I'd never been that high before. That really is my first time, and things were slower. Just you're not going at, you know, it might go, oh, yeah, uh, at lower elevation, I can do hike two and a half miles an hour or two miles. Not really, because uh, that elevation really, you got to account for that. That's a really good point. And I think I talked about, uh, I've talked about this in, in talking to people about other hikes I've done where there's been high elevation. And it's it really changes the calculus of how far you can go per hour. And definitely coming up the backside of Whitney, you're going to be going a lot slower than you're used to hiking because it's really just one foot in front of the other and trying to catch your breath. Because no matter how much you've acclimated over the last several days, you haven't been at the altitude you are going to be at at that point. Right. And I actually think that's another positive for this particular trip is the fact that because you're you're giving yourself time to acclimate to get to the top of Whitney, a lot of these poor people are doing the day hikes. They're starting from sea level, maybe 8,000 feet going up to 14, almost 14 and a half. At least on this trip, you're having, you're slowly acclimating to some degree because you're gaining elevation over time. Definitely. You're definitely going to be in better shape than the people hiking up the east side. That is for sure. And so that's, that is another nice feature of finishing higher, but it's a week into your hike. And so you've got, uh, you've had lots of time to acclimate. That's definitely the case. 
But as we said, it's not the end of the hike. And, and you still got to get down off of this big mountain and you've got 11 miles to go. And it's about a 6,000 foot drop, 6,300 foot drop. And because you end up at Whitney Portal at 8,340 feet, which is 2,542 meters. There are, though, two camping areas on the way down. So you, you don't have to go all the way out the same day. Trail camp, which is at about 12,000 feet. And outpost camp, which I think is over 10,000, but still fairly high up. Trail camp is the most crowded. And if I was coming down off the mountain, I'd probably camp at outpost because trail camp is, it's just kind of a desolate moonscape with a little bit of water and a little pond. And everybody there is trying to find room to camp to head up Whitney. Right. And outpost camp is just a little bit nicer spot. I think it's not a bad spot. It's not not as crowded. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the nice things on the way down, even though you're, you're saying, Oh, my trip is done. There's, there's some pretty scenic stuff. Oh, it's beautiful. It's still beautiful. Yes. And it's kind of like almost stepped, you know, kind of into the elevation as you kind of go down, there's some flat spots. It's not just straight down. Yeah. It's not entirely straight down. There are some meadows and things yeah. like that, but it's pretty steep still. It's still there's, pretty steep. It's not very forgiving. Paths you definitely want to extend your trekking poles and and use them because it's going to be hard on your knees coming down all that way. Yeah. And so we've talked about the East side a little bit and we've mentioned that we both have hiked up Whitney other times. And I think it's probably worth mentioning to people what that hike is because it's a lot of people's experience with Whitney is that hike on the Eastern side. And because of the logistics or time that it takes to hike the high Sierra trail or the John Muir trail, that may be your opportunity to go up Whitney. Maybe that, Eastern side hike. So first I should mention there's a lottery and you have to, in the beginning of February of each year through the middle of March, submit a request for a permit. And then they hold a lottery. I think it's in April and that's done by the Inyo that's spelled I N Y O the Inyo national forest, which is where, because you're, you're the crest is where the Sequoia national park ends. And so now you're in a national forest, which is a different uh, jurisdiction. People do that hike as an overnight hike where they stay at one of the two camps we mentioned, but people also do it as a day hike. Probably the majority of people do it as a day hike, which I would myself never want to do. I, you've done it, right? As no, a day I hike? did it as an overnight. You did an overnight? Okay, yeah. okay. Smart man. Yeah. I think there's two reasons people do it. One is it's the highest peak in the lower 48 and people want to say they've done that. So that attracts a lot of people on its own. And it's accessible. That's the key thing, too. It's the highest and it's accessible to an average person to some degree. Yes, because it's it only requires trail walking, even though it's right. up at high elevation. There's no technical skills required. Right. There are technical routes, but not the one that most people hike. The other thing is that most of the people who hike it are not people who have experience backpacking. And so because of that, they're sort of forced into doing it as a day hike. Yeah. But you got to start at two in the morning. Yeah, they start in the dark and they finish in the dark, which seems crazy to me, but there you have it. It's a 22-mile round trip going up 6,000 feet to over 14,000 feet in elevation. Not my idea of a fun day hike. That's brutal. I I wouldn't want to do it. And 30,000 people per year attempt the the summit of Mount Whitney, and 10,000 are successful, meaning a lot of people that do it as a day hike up the eastern side don't make it to the summit. I know of a guy who's tried it four times. And, and never made it? Never made it. But he's also carrying all of his water for the day. He just He's just packing his fears. He's just carrying, for a day hike, he's carrying like 40 pounds. It's, it's a bit extreme. I've tried to help him lose weight on this, but. 
yeah. So bottom line is it's not a piece of cake if you want to do it that way, but it's available to you. And we recommend as someone who is into backpacking or trekking or both that you do it as an overnight because you're going to have the, the know-how and the gear and you'll have a much more enjoyable time. And and the weather's always wonderful, right, Tony? Yeah, for the most part. Well, I'm, I'm alluding to the <laughs> fact that when you did it, you didn't have great weather. No. What happened? Ah. Uh. Well, I, well, we got rained on, we got stormed on, and uh, we were made bad choices. I uh, A bad campsite choice. Yeah, campsite choice. So, yeah, we got up there, uh, rolled in in the afternoon, so that was nice. I said, oh, hey, it's all packed full of t- tents everywhere. Hey, there's a spot over here. No one's there. It's kind of sandy, beachy, a little uh, sheltered. What's camp over there, which was great. I had my tarp and bivy. I even did, built the great wall of Wong. Yes. Took all these rocks and made it at the head of the tarp in the back, you know, a wall. Well, it started raining, raining at about four o'clock in the afternoon. By midnight, it was coming down hard. And we found out why no one was camping where we were at. It was a drainage ditch, basically. <laughs> <laughs> we had to relocate at at really midnight in a storm to different places and locations to uh, get reset up. That was, I mean, tents were getting shredded by the wind. It was just nuts. Yeah. So you can always run into harsh weather in the high Sierra when you least expect it. And uh, Tony had that happen on a trip that I wasn't on. Thankfully, I didn't have to go through that, but I planned it. So it screwed up. Well, it's, yeah, you planned the trip. That's the problem. <laughs> but it turned out to be a good story. So Yes. And the, we related to Wall of Wong. I don't even remember if at the beginning of the show I even said your last name, but Tony is Tony Wong. Yes. And we joke sometimes that he does some serious construction to build campsites. And we will say for the record that he always takes them down at the end of the yes, trip. I do. And replaces the rocks where he found them. So we leave no trace. And then Jeremy's whole purpose in terms of taking me out, he wants me to do what we call the Wong Wobble. I can get exhausted enough where I'm just delirious, stumbling. stumbling. Yes. He's done his job. Right. Then we're hiking far enough that day. So at the end of this, you end up at Whitney Portal where there's a little store and, and restaurant-ish kind of place where you can get a burger or something like that. And then you you that's where you pick up your ride out or you can camp there in the campground. And that's pretty much it. Anything else that you oh, add about no, the hike no. itself? The, the hike itself or the Whitney Portal pancake? Oh, the Whitney Portal oh, pancake. Yeah, that. tell us about the Whitney Portal pancake. So the Whitney Portal pancake is, a, they're famous for this. Yes. Really cheap. I remember it was like $8 or $9 at the time. And they give you a pancake, two of them. They use a snow shovel to flip this puppy around. They give you yes. two paper plates. And they give you two paper plates. That's right. And they throw it on there. <laughs> And I looked at the menu and said, oh, hey, just for like a buck more, I can have some eggs, scrambled eggs and sausage. It's like two sausage patties and God knows, like three, four eggs on there. It was insane. And I think it was insane that I think I finished it, actually. Well, yeah, you, you work up an appetite hiking for several days. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's an, something to look forward to when you get off the mountain. And beer. And there's always beer, yes. Okay, so... That covers the High Sierra Trail. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of the High Sierra Trail. But Tony, while I have you, there's a few questions that I would I think I'm going to plan to. This is a new podcast, but I think I'm going to plan to ask these kinds of questions of most guests. And because I'll probably have you on multiple times, I'm going to have to come up with new questions to bother you with. Okay. <laughs> but I'm going to start this first time having you on with my sort of what I'm going to hope to be my standard questions. 
what's one piece of gear you don't leave home without or everyone should consider bringing when they go on a multi-day backpacking trip? All right. Well, initially I was going to say the hiking poles, but that, I know for some people that's going to be optional. But the one I've taken on every trip for sure is a good sun hat. Okay. For us, it's the Sunday afternoon hat, which is kind of dorky. I call it built-in birth control. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are both good things. Most people, a lot of people who have not done this kind of hiking are afraid of trekking poles. Don't be. They are immensely helpful to save your knees. And I also agree a sun hat that is a big, broad-rimmed, dorky-looking sun hat is going to be a huge uh, lifesaver. You're going to use a lot less sunblock and not have to worry about whether you have sunblock on all the time. And it just gives you protection from exposure that's going to be constant throughout every day of hiking. And there's times that you're above tree line, you are exposed. So that's great advice. What about, what would you say is the best backpacking, trekking, camping, or wilderness travel advice you've ever gotten? I think the best advice is the key to success is to be, if you're miserable and truly being okay with it and just soldiering on in the sense that it can rain on you. You could be wet, you could be tired, you can be miserable. And rather than just complaining about it, you just accept it and say, Hey, that's part of the experience. I get the, the pleasure. I get the luxury and opportunity to be out here and enjoy this and just kind of move on. You can't control the, con the conditions, but you can absolutely control your attitude about how you react to it. That is great advice. And I think the way I think about that advice is there is a difference that people sometimes when they first get into this activity don't appreciate between being uncomfortable and being in danger. Yes. And there's, and you have to learn that being uncomfortable at times like you've described, is okay, and you'll be fine, yeah. and you'll survive. There is a line where that goes over, where you can go over that line and end up with hypothermia or heat stroke or things like that. And we've even joked a little bit about an incident where that may have you may have been getting close to that line. But for the most part, being a little bit wet, a little bit too tired, a little bit hungry is fine, a little bit hot, a little bit right. cold. Those kinds of things, for the most part, are just inconveniences and it really does, I think, help you in every aspect of your life to learn that you don't have control over a lot of these things and you can do your best to protect against them, but it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's okay when it's four or five in the morning to be a little bit cold because your sleeping bag isn't quite warm right. enough to be perfectly comfortable. You're not going to die. You're not going to freeze to death. It's just going to be a little bit uncomfortable for a while. And it really is uh, something to appreciate when you're backpacking. Yeah. I think the other bit of advice that I'm kind of thinking about, I, other things kind of pop up here is target fixation. I think we've talked about yeah. that. <laughs> Don't have target fixation. What I mean by that, and, and it, just my own story that, uh, where, you know, I kept hiking when I really shouldn't have. And my mistake on this particular trip was real, not realizing, hey, we were ahead of schedule. We finished the trip in four days. We had seven days of food. There was no reason I should have kept going. But I said, hey, I got to get my miles today. So it's okay to not hit your goal unless you're going to run out of food, obviously, things like that. Don't have that target fixation. The mountain's still going to be there. If you have to say, hey, I'm going to fall short today, that's okay. Yeah, I agree with that one also. There's a lot of good places to stop along a hike like this. 
And just because you've set a schedule that puts you in one place, you might find the terrain is way more challenging or you might have an intervening thunder shower that kind of slows you down or stops you for a while. And that's okay. And it's okay to come up short. Obviously, you should always pack a little bit of extra food, maybe a day's worth on a trip like this in case something like that comes up. Yeah, that's great advice as well. Okay, next question. What's the one hike you've done that others shouldn't miss out on? Oh, man. I'm going to really have to go with the John Muir Trail. I know that just, you know, everyone says that. But it is really the crown jewel of the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes from Mexico to Canada. There's a reason why the John Muir Trail is famous. It has a huge amount of variety from north to south. And you see all of this. And staying at some of the uh, the, the resupply places. Uh, what was the... Red's Meadow. Red's Meadow. What was the other one? Mirror. Oh, Vermilion Valley. Vermilion Resort. Valley was awesome. Just having the experience where you're spending time with the, uh, overnight with the other backpackers, that sense of community. I hadn't experienced that before and, and, and the scenery. So it was just an amazing trip. I agree with that. The John Muir Trail really is the one to check off your bucket list someday for the Sierra Nevada. It's a monumental trail. It covers It's over 200 miles. It goes through multiple national parks and multiple wilderness areas. And people from all over the world come to hike it. We met people from Germany, Germany. and Australia yeah. and lots of different places, plus places around the United States. And so it's it's certainly one that I will cover on this show, and it's one worth putting on your list. Okay, what is the next trail on your list or the hike you most want to do? Uh, I want to do the Wonderland Trail. We've talked about this for a number of years, and you haven't planned it because I'm lazy, but maybe I need to plan something. It kind of worries me that you don't do a hike unless I plan it. So you can have whatever list you want in your head, but you're not going, you're not going anywhere. I kind of yeah. need to be motivated, but that, that is what <laughs> – I mean – for a number of reasons, I think doing something out of state, uh, out of California, because uh, we've done a lot of our trips in the Sierras in California, having something different. It's supposed to be a wetter environment, uh, rain. I haven't really had a lot of being tested in the rain, which for my gear setup and experience, I probably want to have that. I agree that the Wonderland Trail is a top destination for me as well. It's a trail that circumnavigates uh, Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier, yeah. It goes around Mount 93 Rainier. 93 miles. I just looked it up this morning. I was thinking about a trip. So, yeah. yeah, and it's definitely at the top of my list. And it's also a trip that whether I do it or not, I will cover on this podcast. It's like 22,000 feet of elevation gain and loss. That's yeah, just crazy. If you think about it, a huge volcano like Mount Rainier, it's got these ribbed sides, right? So you're going up and down these ribs the whole time. You're basically always going up or down. No flat surfaces almost. And so that'll be an interesting trail that I hope we can do, uh, or and I will definitely cover it. What are the best and worst places that I've ever dragged you? Best and worst places. <laughs> uh, actually, it was the, our desert one. Which what, what, oh, Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. It was it was kind of both of those <laughs> at, the right? and at the same time. Yeah, it was uh, cold, man. It was cold. It was windy. This was was it in April or it was earlier in the year but it maybe was late little, march early April. yeah uh i'd never been to the desert before i guess this is considered high desert yes mojave um so it completely changed my idea of it blew away my expectation of what a desert was there were some areas that were very lush in some cases and some very uh flat and dry 
um, hiking on sandy area. My, my knee was just killing me. I don't know if it was uh, something, but I was limping on one of those days and just going, oh God, I just want to get this day done. Yeah, that is a really cool trail. And I'm going to cover that one. Um, that'll be an upcoming episode fairly soon. And I agree that it does. It's challenging in a way that you don't expect, but it's also beautiful in a way that you don't expect. So it does have some of the best and worst at the same time. Is there anywhere you'd refuse to go hiking with me? Oh, where would I not go? (laughs) You know, I would say almost anywhere, but the one trip I think you want to do and I have reservations is doing the the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, Tony. I'm not hiking 2,650 miles in one shot with you. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> we would kill each other. But th- that's just a long haul. I don't know if I want to be committed to four to six or seven months away from home. That's a long one. Yeah, okay. That's a fair answer. All right. So that covers our show for today. Let me give you a quick preview of the next episode. On the next episode, we'll talk about the Kilo Toa Loop. This is a hike that starts at over 2,800 meters up or over 9,250 feet up in the Andes of Ecuador. And it finishes a lot higher up than that. It's another challenging and beautiful hike. This is in a region that's rich in Andean culture. And you hike from town to town through small farms, along dirt roads and trails with volcanoes on the horizon throughout the hike. And the hike ends at a massive caldera lake formed hundreds of years ago by volcanic eruption. So we'll cover the Kilo Toa Loop next time on trails worth hiking. So I hope we've inspired you to hike the High Sierra Trail. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own homework. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risks. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Any feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes can be sent to trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Before we go, it's Jeremy with an update. In July 2020, I took my son, uh, Justin, on a trip in Sequoia National Park, and we hiked two-thirds of the High Sierra Trail and then veered off from the trail and made it a loop through uh, a couple of canyons in Kings Canyon National Park. It was a really... Uh, awesome trip, really beautiful, a lot of solitude, After, particularly after we got off the High Sierra Trail. I'll do a separate episode on that trip called the High Sierra Canyons Loop. But I wanted to uh, add this note to this episode to go over some logistical updates regarding the High Sierra Trail, in particular uh, on bear cans. Bear cans are not technically required, actually, on the High Sierra Trail, but they're highly recommended You can stay uh, only where there are bear boxes if you don't have a bear can. So it's better to carry one for uh, campsite flexibility and safety while you're hiking. But some updates with that in mind uh, on High Sierra Trail campsites that I learned on this more recent trip. One is that there are three different bear box campsites before you get to Bear Paw Meadow at the outset of the trail. So you've got your first 11 to 12 miles to get to Bear Paw Meadow. And there are three spots with bear boxes before you get to Bear Paw Meadow. There's Merton Creek. That's about five to six miles in. And then a few miles later, there's a forested spot that's kind of a a creek that ultimately feeds into Buck Creek. And there's a bear can there in the forest and a, a good campsite there. 
And then as you get pretty close to Bear Paw Meadow, there's also a bear box at a site along Buck Creek that's kind of out in the open. Nice site also. Also, uh, during the, the main episode, I mentioned that there is a potential campsite in Big Arroyo before you go up to the Chigupa Plateau. I wanted to add that there is a bear box at that site at the junction with the, the trail that heads up to the Chigupa Plateau. And the Chigupa Plateau hike to get up there is a really big uphill. It's exposed. And so if you're getting to this point late in the day, camping in Big Arroyo where the bear box is is probably a good option. Also, during the main episode, we talked uh, a bit about Tony having some difficulties with the heat as we went up the hill out of Kern Canyon. And we talked about an area we had stopped by a creek. And that turns out to be, that's Wallace Creek. And there's a bear box there as well, and another good campsite. And that's not a bad place to camp if you go past Junction Meadow and, and want to get some more miles in that day. Um, to have a, a short day to Guitar Lake the next day, that short day gives you a good altitude adjustment for going up Whitney the day after that. Notably, though, there are no bear boxes at Guitar Lake. So if you're going uh, to rely on bear boxes, Crabtree Meadow is your last bear box along this route. Similarly, there are no bear boxes on the east side of Mount Whitney, so if you don't bring a bear can, you really have to make it all the way from Crabtree Meadow out the next day. I think one way to, to really do this is to bring a smaller bear can, which we saw some people doing, and they rely mostly on bear boxes to supplement that early in the trip, and then as it got later in the trip where for example, there's no bear box at Guitar Lake or on the east side of Whitney. They had a bear can that could handle their food for that part of the trip. Well, that's it for my update. Thanks again for listening.